we're hearing a lot about the possibility of a market correction in the near term. Now, what might this mean for ESG investing? How have ESG portfolios performed when there is softening or a transitory trend? And what do investors need to think about today, especially in this low yield environment? Well, here to discuss this and answer some of these questions is Nikita Singal. Nikita is Managing Director, Co-Head of Sustainable Investment and ESG at Lazard. She is also a friend of the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast and was our very first interviewee two years ago. So we give you a special welcome back, Nikita. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kisa. My pleasure. So loads to catch up on here. As I mentioned, there's quite a bit of talk around the expectation of a market correction as we head into Q4. Just how resilient can we expect ESG funds to be in this market? That's a great question, Keith. And I would frame it kind of across three pieces. One is coming back to the definition of ESG, which, um, you know, as you know, there are so many de definitions about in this relatively nascent, uh, you know, industry, at least nascent compared to the history of financial markets. So we'll talk a little bit about that. The second is um, because of its definition, it's the relevance of ESG across market cycles and investment styles. So for example, growth and value. And lastly, recent empirical studies to support this hypothesis. Um, and so starting with the definition really, um, it really depends on when we talk about ESG, often people use different definitions. At Lazard Asset Management, we define ESG as the systematic incorporation of environmental social governance risks and opportunities, and to try and understand how these environmental social issues are getting priced into the market, to try to price them in before the market prices them in, before it's consensus, and therefore ultimately improve investment outcomes for our clients over a long term. Uh, when that is the definition of ESG, then it's not about a specific market cycle, a bull or a bear market, a specific style, whether you're growth or, or deep value or relative value, but much rather about finding ways to think about in a, in a bottom-up fundamental way how a specific environmental or social or governance issue is impacting the investment you're looking at. And, and this, the research actually supports this. So you see longitudinal research studies showing how companies who, have high, who score high on certain sustainability attributes have actually outperformed over others in the long term. Uh, the most uh, popular study I read about these days is by Gunther Fried in the Journal of Sustainable Finance and Investment. And this is going back to 2016, so it's not just you know in the, in the recent years, uh, where there was a meta-analysis of more than 2,000 studies of the impact of high ESG ratings on corporate uh, financial performance. And that showed uh, you know, over a 63% positive correlation. Uh, there's similarly other studies in the Journal of Applied Corporate Finance showing that, that by removing the bottom 10% or 25% of companies by ESG ratings, you could, uh, you could have a portfolio yielding higher returns and, and having lower risk. Uh, similar studies have been done by index providers like MSCI to demonstrate how ESG fund performance can be quantified and how ESG factors can cumulatively contribute to almost 2% of the top 20 ESG funds returns over the last 10 years. But the question that you asked is really, you know, what happens when there is um, a, a market correction? And um, interest, I mean, we have had a bit of that in the last two years. And so this, there has been research that was conducted in the times of recent market turbulence 
So as an example, the S&P Global Market Intelligence found that funds investing in companies based on their ESG ratings are, quote unquote, relative safe havens in economic downturn. And what it did was it analyzed the performance of 17 ESG-focused ETFs and mutual funds um, and that have more than $250 million in assets through that turbulent period of January through May 15 of last year. And all but three outperformed the S&P 500, which you know, is widely considered one of the better, best representations of the market. Um, a lot of people, when they discuss ESG performance, and I'll, I'll pause here, have, have attributed the recent success and kind of outperformance of ESG strategies to sector exposures, uh, specifically the tendency to be underweight energy, especially fossil fuel extraction and being overweight technology. Um, and I think it's worth just uh, uh, as a final point kind of debunking this notion. And there is a recent academic study by Harvard Business School, by a professor at Harvard Business School, that found that companies who responded to the current pandemic with a greater focus on stakeholders, uh, including one's employees and your supply chain partners, actually saw better returns during the 2020 market correction. I definitely can appreciate the thought about focusing on stakeholders and really looking beyond the typical um, lens that we look through, but exposing, as you say, um, employees and also looking at um, suppliers there. I'm curious, Nikita, taking a step back into um, those success factors, some people believe it has to do with sector exposure. Other people really point out that when um, there is a tilt toward ESG, um, understanding the risks and the opportunities there, that there can be still alpha generation. I'm wondering in today's environment, in this low yield environment, um, and it's a low yield environment in so many places, in context of ESG, let's think about the significance um, of Europe, where there is a lot of traction around green bond issuance. How can a manager build a basket where green bonds, sustainability-linked bonds are the focus um, for them in this type of environment where there are so many regions that are experiencing a similar low-yield environmental opportunity? Yeah, great question. And the way I would frame that is I really think that if you, if you call it green conscious investing or investors who proactively want to invest in, in, in fixed income instruments that have exposure to this low energy, the low carbon transition that the world is expected to go through, um, either from a, from a personal motivation standpoint or from an understanding that this is where the world is headed and, and credit may be impacted by it. Um, we really believe at Lazard Asset Management that green conscious investing really requires skilled active management. And I'll tell you why coming to you know, your question about the first and foremost is because of that interest rate exposure that you spoke, about, spoke of. The, the composition of the green bond universe, it offers a pretty helpful example of how interest rate exposure, for example, uh, can impact passive ESG strategies. Uh, by focusing only on labeled green bond issues, we may be overexposed as uh, we may overexpose an investor or a client of ours to unintended interest rate risk and and passive passive investors in particular could end up being more exposed than they bargained for uh, to Europe's low and negative prevailing interest rates. So if you just look at the green bond universe today, European issuers account for almost 40% of the value of green bond issuance uh, since 2007. Uh, according this is according to the climate bond initiative. And over 60, uh, I think it's about 64% of the bonds in the Barclays NSCI Green Bond Index are issued in euros. 
So that's, you know, by, by just selecting green bonds, that's those are some of the issues that you can run into. Uh, which leads me kind of to my second point is that you could still do this in, in a genuine a way while still achieving your risk return objectives by not missing out on unlabeled bonds. Um, passive green bond investors, they tend to miss out on these. Uh, fixed income investments, there, there are fixed income investments that may not be labeled officially as green or social bonds, uh, but there are many that provide options for achieving that diversification, being able to source yield and managing duration all within while trying to achieve also, you know, a sustainably conscious portfolio. So it is very much possible, but you need to have a, a, an investor, an asset manager who can do that bottom-up due diligence, both on the uh, on the credit side, but also on the sustainability side to be able to vet that the use of proceeds of these bonds makes sense. It's in line with the overall objectives of the enterprise that's issuing the bond. And that kind of leads me to my last point, which is, um, you need active management to untangle the current greenwashing challenge that, that we are all facing. Um, many issuers, both corporate and sovereign issuers around the world, uh, we feel sometimes are paying lip service to environmental consciousness without really any meaningful results. Uh, you see this with certain oil majors or utility companies that tout their investments in renewable energy, for example, but they, as an entity, as an enterprise, may still be vulnerable to the stranded assets problem as the world transitions towards cleaner sources of energy. Um, and so we believe that the best active managers actually tap into this, into their in-depth fundamental research to determine which issuers are serious about sustainability and which are merely, merely kind of trying to ride the wave of, of this pro-environment sentiment. Uh, one example is our global fixed income team at Lazard, which purchased its first green bond in 2015. Um, and more than 20% of that portfolio today is invested in labeled green, social and sustainable bonds. But far beyond that, as I described, there is an attempt to try and unlock um, uh, you know, opportunities, both on the sustainability and yield side, um, to, to look at unlabeled bonds and to try and strip away the wheat from the shaft in terms of the uh, the, the sustainability claims that a lot of issuers have versus those that have, uh, you know, really legitimate use of proceeds, uh, many of whom, uh, you know, have proceeds that are earmarked for certain qualified projects, which we really like, um, and, and some of which are even, um, you know, have second party opinions on, on the issuance. These are from firms like Cicero Sustainalytics and Vigio, uh, which are all in compliance with the, the ICMA Green Social Bond Principle. So that's something that we would, um, we would advocate for. Did you know the number of companies that have a diversity and opportunities policy in place have increased from just 39% in 2013 to 85% in 2017? More and more investors and portfolio managers look for companies that incorporate ESG values into their businesses. Promoting diversity and inclusion within the workforce is not just an important and growing theme, but it drives major ESG value. Refinitiv's quality controlled ESG database delivers diversity and inclusion reports and trends, which can in turn inform better investment strategies. This data set can be accessed via a range of our products at Refinitiv. Learn about different packages and offerings by connecting with us at Refinitiv.com. So, and this is great. I appreciate the thought about the pro-environment 
sentiment. And I think that crosses, we're talking about bonds now, but we can also look at equities and really look at look at what's going on in a couple of specific sectors. And I'm thinking about the oil and gas sector and the um, transition toward renewable energy. I'm wondering specifically now, as we're getting closer to COP26, what types of expectations may be set for oil and gas and renewables? And do you think that we should expect specific outcomes after COP26 in that sector? Yeah, I mean, this is a very tricky question. I, I um, Tricky, I mean, I would say complicated and challenging, and I certainly don't have a clear answer. But I, what I can present to you is the uh, you know, potential arguments on both sides um, um, and and the challenges that I think I see unfolding with as countries make uh, increase and ratchet up their commitments, their nationally determined contributions. Uh, you know, just today I saw a, a report out by our energy analyst talking about how energy prices are like almost 8% of world GDP. And this is driven uh, primarily by a 26% plus increase in Asian LNG prices. Uh, this is probably only the second time that this has happened since 2008, uh, and energy prices are at 87% above the two-year moving average. Um, this could have a major destabilizing effect, you know, impacting credit, impacting counterparty risk, uh, and even at a societal level, destroying disposable income budgets for, for homes. Um, all of this is happening against the backdrop of COP26, uh, that which is you know an, a meeting held for the members of the Paris Agreement to come back and as I said ratchet up their agreements. Um, there are some very positive things that have happened in the world in the last ten years. The uh, the recognition of the urgency of climate change um, and and this is you know with the recent IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it has become even more urgent to quickly try to decarbonize our economies. Um, and we've also had real technological breakthroughs. So governments are recognizing the urgency. Um, there is an ability to actually significantly increase global renewable energy power capacity. Um, and this is on the back of the, the cost effectiveness now of renewable technologies, um, you know, almost a 89% drop in solar energy and 70% drop in wind energy costs uh, since just 2009. Uh, so very some very positive uh, factors, but on the back of it, this transition that is inevitable in many ways uh, is going to result in dislocations. And particularly what I'm concerned about is how do we make sure that this transition that is increased, you know, it, it is inevitable and we are trying to figure out what's the quickest time horizon over which to have the transition mm. as a planet, um, that it is just. And we don't have situations, um, you know, across emerging markets, but even in developed markets, you saw this just a few years ago with the Gilets jaunes movement in France. If there is pressure to transition our economies at a very quick pace, uh, there is a there's quite a like there's quite uh, a chance that the um, inflationary effect of trying to transition economies quickly will fall to the people who can't afford it at all. And, and you see that in the rising costs of commodities uh, in, in fossil fuel commodities already. So it's a really delicate balance. I think that um, I, I really like to follow the work, work of the inevitable policy response. This is a project that was, um, it is an aim to help prepare institutional investors like us at Lazard for portfolio risks and opportunities. So anyone interested in that, I would highly recommend they take a look at the, at the inevitable policy response. This was commissioned by the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investing in 2018. 
and it's uh, led by two firms, the, the Vivid Economics and the Energy Transition Advisors. But, but they've done work to try and understand uh, under the back, uh, against the backdrop of the urgency to uh, respond to climate change and to try and mitigate some of the, um, the highest probability risks of, of, of climate change unfolding over the next even you know, medium to long term, not just uh, a 20 year horizon, but just in the next 10 years. Um, what is the expectation of the next wave of announcements for net zero? So they predict that the United States as well as countries like India and Australia will announce their net zero emissions targets by as early as 2023. Uh, they have similar projections for carbon pricing where, where they, uh, they um, predict that carbon border adjustment mechanisms, which are already being heavily discussed and I suspect will be a big part of the COP26 discussions, um, these um, CBAMs from tier one countries are likely to put pressure on other countries to implement more ambitious carbon pricing. Um, and then most notably, the impact on coal. I mean, we were talking about oil and gas, but really with, with coal becoming uh, un new unabated coal, largely becoming uninvestable, you know, by 2025 in almost all countries and how several, several um, states, even in the country like India, which is so dependent on coal, almost 73% of generation in 2018 was uh, what came from coal, has had states like Gujarat and Chhattisgarh that have set the objective to end new coal generation. Uh, so I just kind of would summarize this where it is, you know, a very complicated equation to try and understand what exactly the, the direct impacts are going to be. But as fundamental bottom-up investors, our goal is to make sure we try and have a probability adjusted view of what's likely to happen in the world in terms of regulation and this kind of inevitable policy response against the backdrop of how companies are responding to them and how resilient they're going to be. Uh, so uh, very, um, uh, very exciting and it's, it's mm. times ahead, I, I would say. Excellent, and what a great point to end on. So we don't just talk about sectors and industries here, but when looking at mitigating climate change, there are practical realities and trade-offs as it relates to the decarbonization of the economy. When we look at regions, emerging countries, emerging economies, and what um, they're being asked to do in context of the resources that they have. Also, very clear, defining what ESG is and really sticking with that definition, the one that you gave to us, Nikita, the systematic incorporation of environmental, social, and governance risk and opportunities and understanding how these environmental and social issues are priced into the market, using that information to improve investment outcomes for your clients long term. And really, at the end of the day, it's all about finding ways to think about those ESG issues, how they impact the investments that you're looking at and really looking at the possibility of in all markets, um, in all types of environments, including the one we're in now, how ESG can help an investor to outperform the market and great information, great background and data that you gave us around um, how ESG can be used to help outperform and generate alpha. As always, Nikita Single, thank you so much, Nikita Single from Lazard. My pleasure, Kisa, thank you. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. You can even check us out on YouTube now. 
Thank you for joining. See you next time.